Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. We are talking about uh, Of Human Bondage, Chapter 5. But first, Simply E Productive has submitted Egg Map, definitive version by Simply Productive. I think before we move on, we've really got to address this whole egg thing. Um, Simply Productive has submitted a definitive map of the egg. Um, okay, I can see the section defined as the bottom, the section defined as the top, and then the main section is the middle of the egg, and he says, here there be yolk. It seems accurate to me. Found inscribed on the opposite side of the egg map, the top and bottom of the egg can be determined by one obtaining a regular spoon to wit a soup spoon, not a fruit spoon, nor a serving spoon, nor a teaspoon, nor a dessert spoon, and carefully inserting down the edge of the shell and lifting one portion of egg out forthwith. There is to be no digging nor scourging of the egg. Important detail there on the scourging or digging. Now I... Look, if I was to remove the top of an egg, I would remove more than what is depicted here. Let that be said. Let, that, let the record show that I would remove more of the top of the egg than that because I would want to be able to have clear access for a donkey piece of bread and I think that amount that's depicted, you would have to make sure that you've got a quite a narrow donkey piece of bread and I, I would want a nice thick donkey piece of bread. Fix the Blue says, Simply Productive, Brilliant. Well, Andrew Lewis, you did ask for an in-depth analysis of the egg. My question to everyone is, do you break the shell and peel it off before removing the top or just power the spoon right through the shell? Me personally, I'm a power not a remover. Wow. I certainly would remove it gently. If I get a grain of shell in my food, I can't take another bite of that food. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a psychological thing. But if I'm eating a delicious cake, best cake I've ever had, and it just goes, you get that crunch, that's it for me. I can't eat, I can't eat more. So I certainly wouldn't be plowing through a shell with a spoon. No way. Our treat said, yep, that egg top sure is tasty. Sure do like it. Can't wait for a few more days until I have another egg tops. Yum. <laughs> okay. Um... Hmm. I think one thing that is important to question is, was it a hard-boiled egg or a soft-boiled egg? And I'm assuming it's a soft-boiled egg because why would you remove the top of a hard-boiled egg? You just peel off the shell entirely, right? So it's a soft-boiled egg if you're going to remove the top so that you can dunk donkey bread in. And if it is a soft-boiled egg for dippy donkey bread, then you're going to want to remove a quite a large portion from the top. Fix the Blue said, Is anyone else craving dippy egg and soldiers after that podcast? I think the oddest thing about Philip's meager mouthful of egg top was that Mr. Carey seemed almost pleased with himself for his generosity in bestowing said egg top on the poor orphaned boy. Anyone else get that? Um, Swim said the Mama Fisher says, I didn't know what eggs and soldiers was, so I looked up dippy egg and soldiers recipe and let me just have a little look at the link just to make sure everything's up to snuff there with that db eggs with toast soldiers um oh my god oh no no that's all 
Okay, that is a nightmare. So the thing that I'm seeing depicted here is an egg in an egg cup with some soldiers next to it. And the top is broken off and the egg is nice and runny. But the top is broken off. It looks like it's been broken off. You couldn't break off the top of that egg messier. There's so many small fragments of eggshell in the yolk that you are 100% guaranteed to get eggshell in your mouth if you eat that. Um, I could not disagree more strongly with that depiction of a dippy egg. egg. Anyway, moving right along. I think I'm happy to move on if everyone else is all good with that. Um, because maybe as we read the book further, it will become clearer just how much of an egg he got. It might be something like that. If we get to the end of the book and it's not cleared up, though, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be angry. Fix the Blue also says, Anywho, Chapter 5, More Carey Moaning About Money. I hope this isn't going on throughout the whole book. Is there no pleasing this man? Donate money to me for the church? Ugh, how pretentious to give so much. I wondered how far the 2000 of Philip's inheritance would go in those times. Well, I did a bit of Googling and apparently it is 1885. £2,000 is worth £258,000 today. Now that's hardly peanuts. I get that Carey might be struggling financially, but in my opinion, he is also definitely a stinge. That's a hell of a lot of money. Even £2,000 is a lot. Even today, that's a lot. £258,000? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. You're going to be able to raise the boy with that. I mean, come on. Uh, Laura Stitch said, I'm surprised by that amount. Carey made it sound like he was barely enough to survive on. Apparently, it's not even enough to buy a boy an egg. And we're back on the egg. <laughs> J.P. Guthrie says, He gets the fire, the egg, the trips to London and Switzerland, and Louisa quietly gets on without anything. He's quite Scrooge-like, unless it's for his benefit. True, hey? I just realized my microphone was quite far away from my mouth the whole time. I'm Norwegian said, Yep, the uncle is a douchebag. I can't believe he feels satisfaction in Philip's mother dying, like she was some harlot who got her just dessert. You know, her being beautiful and somewhat frivolous with money and all. Altre says, And then he's, spending, he's, sorry, and then he's patting himself on the back for being Nostradamus as if he had an earthly, as if she had an early death because she was a bit spendy. Acoustic Eel says, ooh, interesting dimension added to the dynamic between the two brothers, William Carey and Philip's father. Have we got a name? I believe it was um, Henry. Um, and Jan Brunt says that too. Henry is Philip's father. I believe. Um, we have gotten a name. Uh, had different philosophies on spending around the house to the point where William seemed almost personally offended at his brother's spending. Now that he's stuck with their child... He must be having some complicated feelings about it. wonder if those will surface in his further interactions with Philip. Can I just say how nice it is to be reading the exact same words as Ander is saying on the podcast? I've been reading and listening at the same time because otherwise I get distracted. It was a little weird be reading along in a different translation from French for the last two books. Of course, I brought that on myself by turning my nose up at the public domain versions. Are any of my fellow modern translation aficionados feeling a bit of relief now that we're back in English. Altreat says, yes, I really enjoyed the modern translations I selected for the last couple of books, but I do appreciate reading the actual words the author wrote. Yeah, I like that too. And I, that's one thing I really like about this book is that the public domain one is 
the one that we're all reading. I love that. Sour, Patch, and Popcorn said, I'm going to go against the group with my feelings towards Uncle Vicar. For now, he disagrees with how his brother and his wife handled their money, an opinion he's entitled to, especially since he's stuck with their kid and no monetary help to raise him. I don't think that's douchey. I think that's his way of accepting his new lot. I didn't sense any malice whatsoever in his thinking or related affect. He's good-naturedly trying to be kind and hospitable to Philip, and that is shining through more to me than his relationship with money. Furthermore, if Morham were to go... You've got a warning there, Sour Patch and Popcorn. He made me say the name. Furthermore, if the author we shall not speak his surname of were to go so shallow and black and white with his characterizations as to boil W.M. down... W.M. Wait, who's W.M.? To merely a jealous miser this early in the book, I would have a difficult time anticipating that this novel ends up being anything great. True. The other thing I suspect is maybe we're going to move on quite quickly from childhood and, you know, meet Philip as a as a young adult soon. You know, I feel like maybe it's going to skip forward and it's just setting the scene of the fact that he was adopted and, and what happened in his earlier youth. I don't think this is going to be the story of a 10-year-old boy. Um, Swim, said the mum of fish, she said, the description of Philip's mother having her portrait taken was touching. Uh, M <laughs> kept his mother's framed photograph by his bed his whole, his whole life. Yeah, I liked that detail too, um, that someone mentioned earlier that the author kept a photo of his mother his whole life and and i like that the, there's parallels there as it is a uh, semi-autobiographical book simply productive says i'm a penny pincher but i could not bear to do it with food i love ice cream far too much i'm going to say that the uncle is clear is the clear villain what a crazy theory uh, well the good thing about food is you don't really have to be too much of a penny pincher with it because it's so cheap these days Unless you're going, you know, organic and and whatnot. But, you know, pop down the shops and grab yourself a tub of ice cream or a cheeseburger. You could do that, even if you're as broke as me. Which is quite broke. Um, speaking of that, head over to patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Support the podcast and buy me a cheeseburger. Uh, let's keep reading the book. If I sound like I'm doing something, like I'm distracted, it's because I'm trying to balance my feet on top of the heater that's next to me. So I'm in a really weird position right now. Um, chapter 6. One day was very like another at the vicarage. Soon after breakfast, Mary Ann brought in the times. Mr. Carey shared it with two neighbours. He had it from ten till one. When the gardener took it over to Mr. Ellis at the limes, with whom it remained till seven, then it was taken to Miss Brooks at the manor house, who, since she got it late, had the advantage of keeping it. In summer, Mrs. Carey, when she was making jam, often asked her for a copy to cover the pots with. When the vicar settled down to his paper, his wife put on her bonnet and went out to do the shopping. Philip accompanied her. Blackstable was a fishing village. It consisted of a high street in which were the shops, the bank, the doctor's house, and the houses of two or three coal ship owners. Round the little harbour were shabby streets in which lived 
in which lived fishermen and poor people, but since they went to chapel they were of no account. When Mrs. Carey passed the dissenting ministers in the street, she stepped over to the other side to avoid meeting them. But if there was not time for this, fixed her eyes. But if there was not time for this, fixed her eyes on the pavement. It was a scandal to which the vicar had never resigned himself that there were three chapels in the high street. He could not help feeling that the law should have stepped in to prevent their erection. Shopping in shopping in Black Stable was not a simple matter for dissent, helped by the fact that the parish church was two miles from the town, was very common, and it was necessary to deal only with churchgoers. Mrs. Carey knew perfectly that the vicarage custom might make all the difference to a tradesman's faith. There were two butchers who went to church, and they would not understand that the vicar could not deal with both of them at once, nor were they satisfied with his simple plan of going for six months to one and for six months to the other. The butcher, who was not sending meat to the vicarage, constantly threatened not to come to church, and the vicar was sometimes obliged to make a threat. It was very wrong of him not to come to church, but if he carried iniquity further and actually went to chapel, then of course, excellent, as his meat was, Mr. Carey would be forced to leave him forever. Mrs. Carey often stopped at the bank to deliver a message to Josiah Graves, the manager who was choir master, treasurer and church warden. He was a tall, thin man with a sallow face and a long nose. His hair was very white, and to Philip he seemed extremely old. He kept the parish accounts, arranged the treats for the choir and the schools, Though there was no organ in the parish church, it was generally considered in Blackstable that the choir excuse me <clears throat> that the choir he led was the best in Kent. And when there was any ceremony, such as a visit from the bishop for confirmation, or from the rural dean to preach at the harvest thanksgiving, he made the necessary preparations, but he had no hesitation in doing all manner of things without more than a perfunctory consolation with the vicar and the vicar, though always ready to be saved trouble, much resented the church warden's managing ways. He really seemed to look upon himself as the most important person in the parish. Mr. Carey constantly told his wife that if Josiah Graves did not take care, he would give him a good rap over the knuckles one day. But Mrs. Carey advised him to bear with Josiah Graves. He meant well, and it was not his fault if he was not quite a gentleman. The vicar, finding his comfort in the practice of a Christian virtue, exercised forbearance, but he revenged himself by calling the churchwarden Bismarck behind his back. Once there had been a serious quarrel between the pair, and Mrs. Carey still thought of that anxious time with dismay. The conservative candidate had announced his intention of addressing a meeting at Blackstable, and Josiah Graves, having arranged that it should take place in the Mission Hall, went to, Mrs. to Mr. Carey and told him that he hoped he would say a few words. It appeared that the candidate had asked Josiah Graves to take the chair. This was more than Mr. Carey could put up with. He had firm views upon the respect with which, due, which was due to the cloth, and it was ridiculous for a churchwarden to take the chair at a meeting when the vicar was there. He reminded Josiah Graves that parson meant person, that is, the vicar was the person of the parish, Josiah Graves answered that he was the first to recognise the dignity of the church, but this was a matter of politics, and in his turn he reminded the vicar 
that their blessed Saviour had enjoined upon them to render unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. To this Mr. Carey replied that the devil could quote scripture to his purpose, himself had sole authority over the mission hall, and if he were not asked to be chairman he would refuse to use of it for political meeting. Refuse, sorry, he would refuse the use of it for a political meeting. Josiah Graves told Mr. Carey that he might do it as he chose, and for his part he thought the Wesleyan Chapel would be an equally suitable place. Then Mr. Carey said that if Josiah Graves set foot in what was little better than a heathen temple, he was not fit to be churchwarden in a Christian parish. Josiah Graves thereupon resigned all his offices, and that very evening sent to the church for his cassock and surplice. His sister, Miss Graves, who kept house for him, gave up her secretaryship at the maternity club, which provided the pregnant poor with flannel, baby linen, coals and five shillings. Mr. Carey said he was at last master in his own house. But soon he found that he was obliged to see to all sorts of things that he knew nothing about, and Josiah Graves, after the first moment of irritation, discovered that he had lost his chief interest in life. Mrs. Carey and Mrs. Graves were much distressed by the quarrel. They met after a discreet exchange of letters and made up their minds to put the matter right. They talked one to her husband, the other to her brother, from morning till night, and since they were persuading these gentlemen to do what in their hearts they wanted, after three weeks of anxiety and reconciliation was effected. It was to both their interests, but they ascribed it to a common love for their Redeemer. This meeting was held at the Mission Hall, and the Doctor was asked to be Chairman. Mr. Carey and Josiah Graves both made speeches. When Mr. Carey had finished business with the banker, she generally went upstairs to have a little chat with his sister, and while the ladies talked of parish matters, the curator of the new bonnet of Mrs. Wilson, Mr. Wilson, was the richest man in Blackstable. He was thought to have at least 500 a year, and he had married his cook. Philip sat demurely in the stiff parlour, used only to receive visitors, and busied himself with the restless movements of a goldfish in a bowl. The windows were never opened, except to air the room for a few minutes in the morning, and it had a stuffy smell which seemed to Philip to have a mysterious connection with banking. Then Mrs. Carey remembered that she had to go to the grocer, and they continued their way. When the shopping was done, they often went down a side street of little houses, mostly of wood, in which a fisherman dwelt, and here and there a fisherman sat on his doorsteps mending his nets, and nets hung to dry upon the doors, till they came to a small beach shut in on each side by warehouses, but with a view of the sea. Mrs. Carey stood for a few minutes and looked at it. It was a it was turbid and yellow, and who knows what thoughts passed through her mind, while Philip searched for flat stones to play ducks and drakes. Then they walked slowly back, they looked into the post office to get the right time, nodded to Mrs. Wigram, the doctor's wife, who sat at her window sewing, and so got home. Dinner was at one o'clock, and on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday it consisted of beef, beef, roast, hashed, and minced, and then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of mutton. On Sunday they ate one of their own chickens, in the afternoon Philip did his lessons. He was taught Latin and mathematics by his uncle, who knew neither and French and piano by his aunt. Of French she was ignorant, but she knew the piano well enough to accompany the old-fashioned songs she had sung for thirty years. 
Uncle William used to tell Philip that when he was a curate, his wife had known twelve songs by heart, which she could sing at a moment's notice whenever she was asked. She often sang still when there was a tea party at the vicarage. There were few people whom the Careys cared to ask there, and their parties consisted always of the curate, Josiah Graves, with his sister, Dr. Wigram, and his wife. After tea, Mrs. Graves played one or two of Mendelssohn's songs without words, and Mrs. Carey sang, When the Swallows Home Would Fly, or Trot, Trot, My Pony. But the Careys did not give tea parties. Often the preparations upset them, and when their guests were gone, they felt themselves exhausted. They preferred to have tea by themselves, and after tea, they played black, ba- backgammon. Mrs. Carey arranged that her husband should win because he did not like losing. They had a cold supper at eight. It was a scrappy meal because Marianne resented getting anything ready after tea, and Mrs. Carey helped to clear away. Mrs. Carey seldom ate more than bread and butter, with a little stewed fruit to follow, but the vicar had a slice of cold meat. Immediately after supper, Mrs. Carey rang the bell for prayers, and then Philip went to bed. He rebelled against being undressed by Mary Ann, and after a while succeeded in establishing his right to dress and undress himself. At nine o'clock, Mary Ann brought in the eggs and the plate. Mrs. Carey wrote the date on each egg, and put the number down in a book. She then took the plate basket on her arm and went upstairs. Mr. Carey continued to read one of his old books, but as the clock struck ten, he got up, put out the lamps, and followed his wife to bed. When Philip arrived, there was some difficulty in deciding on which evening he should have his bath. It was never easy to get plenty of hot water, since the kitchen boiler did not work, and it was impossible for two persons to have a bath on the same day. The only man who had a bathroom in Blackstable was Mr. Wilson, and it was thought ostentatious of him. Mary Ann had her bath in the kitchen on Monday night because she liked to begin the week clean. Uncle William could not have his on Saturday because she had, because he had a heavy day before him, and he was always a little tired after a bath, so he had it on a Friday. Mrs. Carey had hers on Thursday for the same reason. It looked as though Saturday were naturally indicated for Philip, but Mary Ann said... She couldn't keep the fire up on Saturday night, what with all the cooking on Sunday, having to make pastry, and she didn't know what all. She did not feel up to giving the boy his bath on Saturday night, and it was quite clear that he could not bath himself. Mrs. Carey was shy about bathing a boy, and of course the vicar had his sermon. But the vicar insisted that Philip should be clean and sweet for the Lord's day. Mary Ann said she would rather go than be put upon and after eighteen years she didn't expect to have more work given her. Now they might show some consideration, and Philip said he didn't want anyone to bath him, but he could very well bath himself. This settled it. Mary Ann said she was quite sure he wouldn't bath himself properly, and rather than he should go dirty. Not because he was going into the presence of the Lord, but because she couldn't abide a boy who wasn't properly washed. She'd work herself to the bone, even if it was Saturday night. All right, there we go. There's chapter six down. It's quite a long chapter. Are the chapters just getting longer, or is it a bit of a freak long one? I think the chapters are getting longer as we as we progress. It's all good. No problem. Have your say over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.